Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. This week, I was fully, totally prepared to bring you a podcast on how to identify your values and why values are important. And one of you beautiful souls wrote me a message on Monday that changed the entire trajectory of today's podcast. And so I'm going to read you their question and help you understand the premise of this podcast. It all has to do with authenticity and allowing ourselves to open up and have the space to be all of ourselves and to not feel like we need to fit ourselves in a box. I want us to give ourselves permission to allow for the complexity and the multiplicity that we are so that we can quit being so hard on ourselves and actually make room for all the different facets and the contradicting pieces that make up who we are. And the more we can do that, the more we can open up, the more we can give ourselves space for curiosity and acceptance, the more we're able to understand ourselves and heal, the more we're able to belong to ourselves. And the more we belong to ourselves and the more securely attached we feel within, the better we're able to interact with the world outside of us and to create secure attachments with people outside of us. So the message that sparked all of this came from a dear friend and they said, I always feel like I'm at war with myself. It's hard to be true to myself when myself can't agree on what I'm supposed to be true to. Do you relate with that? Have you ever felt inside of yourself that there's one part of you that believes one way or values one thing and that there's another part of you that disagrees? That's kind of what my friend here was saying. We talked about identifying core values and making decisions based on those values because I thought, you know, sometimes what happens is we make decisions based on other people's values. We don't check in with our own values because of people pleasing or whatever. I had made that assumption. And I thought, you know, if we have a discussion about values and I was gearing up for the podcast on values anyway, I thought, you know, if we talk about values, maybe that will help clarify and my friend will feel more anchored into who they are and what they want and what they value and they'll have that sense of personal integrity. But the more we talked, the more it brought up frustration for my friend. And they said it was like there were competing values and priorities living inside of their body and mind. This person said, for instance, there's a part of me that's incredibly proud of how I'm opening up to understand and feel compassion for the experiences of people who are different than me. And then there's a part of me that says, this is dangerous. You'll be influenced to do bad things and you're going to burn in hell if you're wrong. Now, I know many of you listening to this deeply feel this kind of tug of war going on inside of you. There's a part of you that feels really proud of what you're doing. There's a part of you that feels really free. There's a part of you that loves how your life is going. And there's a part of you whispering in your ear, you could go to hell 
what if you're wrong? You're a bad daughter or a bad son. You're a bad person. You're a bad spouse or a bad mom. And so you know what I'm talking about here. When you have these competing parts inside of yourself, it can feel like there's almost like a war going on inside of you. And it can make it really difficult to feel like you know yourself when it feels like there are parts of you that are at war with each other. And so this week, as my friend brought up this idea of parts that are at war with inside themselves, it made me think of a therapy modality that I draw on a lot in my coaching practice. It's called Internal Family Systems Therapy, or IFS for short. And it is a system that was created by Dr. Richard Schwartz back in the 1980s. He is a psychologist that has highly influenced my work, and it draws a lot on attachment theory. And all of these ideas have been incredibly useful in my healing from clinical depression when I was diagnosed 12 years ago and have since also helped me heal from a lot of those conflicting ideas inside of myself that came from high-demand religion. And so today, before we move on with any other sorts of conversations about authenticity, I really feel like we need to cover this idea of internal family systems and what that means and how it operates inside of you, because it's given myself a lot of space to offer myself acceptance, compassion, and kindness Instead of frustration and shame that I used to feel when I have these contradicting things going on inside of me. So if you're feeling that way, you are not going crazy. There is nothing wrong or broken about you. You aren't even unusual. I think everyone experiences this feeling of multiplicity inside of themselves and this tug of war that goes on between the different parts of themselves. So Dr. Schwartz says the natural state of the mind is to have parts. We are birthed into this world having a multiplicity already inside of us, that it's the natural state of us to be multiple and to have internal subpersonalities. And these parts are natural. They're not a product of trauma. And when they start out, all of them have valuable qualities and resources to help us in our lives. So the way he describes it is like there's almost like a family living inside of us that each of these parts of ourselves perform different roles and they're all for our benefit and that we're born with them either manifest or dormant and that they pop out at different times in our lives to start to help us, to help us be successful, to get what we want and to allow us to operate in several different roles in our lives. And these aren't multiple personalities. He was very clear about that. But they're the sum of one united whole. So all of these parts are authentic to ourselves. Remember in the last episode, we were talking about how sometimes we'll show up in one way in a certain situation and we'll show up in a different way in another situation. And that doesn't make us inauthentic. That I think we think about authenticity in too simplistic of terms. We think about it in either or, black and white, all or nothing. And that we're either being authentic or we're not, when actually 
I think we have several different parts inside of ourselves and we show up in these different roles according to our circumstances and the relationships that we're in and who we're with. And all of that is authentic. All of that is a manifestation of the whole sum of who we are. So all of those are snapshots of our authentic selves, of a multifaceted, very complicated human experience. So as I was reading Dr. Schwartz's explanation of all of these different parts and that they weren't a product of trauma, I found myself really pushing back against that idea. Because from my experience, I do have parts that protect certain emotions or experiences that are related to trauma or to attachment wounds, and they carry out very specific roles in my life. And often when I'm triggered, I recognize these certain parts and how they come up. And so I dived in even further into Dr. Schwartz's research. I wanted to see what he had to say back in the 80s, but I wanted to see how his work had evolved over the last 35 years. And in an interview in January 2021, he actually goes on to say that trauma and attachment injuries can actually force these parts or subpersonalities in ourselves into destructive or extreme roles that might have been needed when we were younger, but later became outdated or anachronistic. And if you don't know what anachronistic means, because I did not actually, I had never really heard that term before. Anachronistic means that it's outdated. It's something from the past that's living in the present. And so we have these protective mechanisms that may have been absolutely necessary for us as children. It may have been our best effort to protect ourselves, and it may have been the only way to protect ourselves in our childhood environment. And now that we're adults, we're still operating from that pattern that we created whenever we were children. We're still in these protective roles when we may not need them anymore. And so that's what anachronistic means, is we're still using that old pattern, that old system to protect ourselves as if we were children when we're no longer children. We're adults now, and we can protect ourselves in different ways or not need protection at all. So in today's episode, we're going to explore some of the parts that many of us have inside of us. We're going to explore the roles that these parts may have been forced into because of trauma or attachment injuries. And we're going to start to understand how they work together so that you can begin to open up and make space for all the different parts of yourself without vilifying certain parts and favoring other parts. I want us to just open up a bit more and make space for all of our different parts so that they all have a voice, they can all be seen and heard and acknowledged, and just have a greater understanding for the multiplicity that lives inside of us. And ultimately, the more we can open up, the more room there is to accept ourselves. And again, like we talked about just a minute ago, the more we can accept ourselves, the more we can show up in the world from that sense of personal safety. We don't need other people to validate us or to fill up the gaps in our self-worth as much because we're getting more of that from within. So we're able to meet people in a place not of codependency, but a place of healthy interdependency where I am a whole person And I'm meeting you in the middle because I want to. And it's a win-win for both of us. Instead of I'm coming to you 
as a person with huge wounds and I need you to heal me or fix me or love me or accept me because I've never experienced that. In fact, Dr. Schwartz was saying in his experience over the past 37 years, when we're trying to heal attachment wounds, he's noticed that we can heal those wounds with other people. We can learn to have secure attachment with other people, but it often takes years. It takes a lot of time and effort and energy to work with someone else and to then begin to develop secure attachments that we can then replicate with other people when we're doing that with someone outside of ourselves. Because we don't have all the control and it takes a long time to overcome those trust issues of giving other people control. And we're going to talk about why here in a bit. It has to do with our managers and our firefighters, the parts inside of us that try to protect us. And we'll talk about what those are. But when we're relinquishing some control to other people, it can make us feel really unsafe if we have some big attachment injuries. And so he said that he's noticed, however, when people are working with internal family systems and they have parts of themselves that are giving secure attachment to the more insecure or ashamed or fearful childlike parts of themselves. When they're reparenting themselves, they can build secure attachment within themselves within a matter of weeks or months. And so that's why this work is so important. What we're talking about today, it's so important to understand this work because we can develop a healthy, secure attachment within ourselves in a fraction of the time that it would take to heal those wounds with another person. And when we become our primary caregiver, our primary secure attachment, it actually allows us to create secure attachments with a therapist or a significant other or family members or friends much more quickly. We're going to be exploring some of these things because I know you want to show up in your relationships in a way that feels good for you. I know you don't want to be fighting with yourself. And I know you don't want to be fighting with other people for their validation and for their acceptance. And you want to show up knowing that you're worthy so that you can attract the people that recognize that inside of you and you can have a secure, healthy attachment with them. Instead of continuing to attract people into your life that either you find that you cut and run from because their secure attachment style feels too unsafe or too risky for you, or who have their own attachment wounds and you find yourself in the same dance relationship-wise that you've been in since you were a child. All of that plays into being able to show up intentionally, being able to show up with a sense of integrity, and being able to show up with a sense of safety out in the world. And I know that's what so many of you are after. You want to feel like it is safe to be yourself, safe to explore who you are, safe to try things on, safe to question your values and your beliefs, and to create ones that serve you and feel good to you. Now, before we go any further in the episode, I have a quick and easy ask of you. If you feel this podcast is helping you understand and accept yourself better, and if you feel these resources should be amplified so that more people have access to them as they deconstruct high-demand religion and family trauma, please 
take a couple of short minutes and head over to emancipateyourmind.org and make a $10 donation. It's so easy and it's tax deductible in the United States. So go to emancipateyourmind.org or if you want to click on the link in the show notes. The donation area is on the right-hand side at the top of the page under the words support the podcast and give a gift. Click the monthly donation button if you'd like to automatically fund the research and broadcast each month so that together we can make sure that no person goes through religious deconstruction without emotional and mental support. This is so important to me. I know how difficult this deconstruction process is, both leaving high-demand religion and high-demand families. I know how lonely I felt going through it. I know how difficult it was to find resources. I don't want that to happen to anyone that comes after me. So all of your help. It means so much to me to continue to provide these resources and make the journey that much easier and the healing that much faster. I envision a world of people who know who they are and love and accept themselves, and I can only imagine wonderful things coming from that as we heal into that space. Okay, now before we begin to get acquainted with the different parts of ourselves, I want us to create some non-judgmental space. There are two ingredients that will speed your healing faster than anything else. One of them is curiosity, and the other one is non-judgment. When we can create a space for ourselves or for anyone that we're trying to do relationship work with, when we come to the table with curiosity, meaning I want to understand, I'm going to ask questions, and I'm going to be open to hearing your perspective. I just want to know what it's like to be you. Getting curious. That's the first ingredient. And the second ingredient is non-judgment. When what is being shared doesn't mean that you're a bad person or a good person. When what's being shared is just information. Information to help us understand one another better. Information to help us heal. Information to help us understand the other person's perspective. When we create a space of non-judgment, we arrive at understanding more quickly. And when we arrive at understanding, we're better able from that place to go to acceptance, which is where we're trying to go. We're trying to be able to understand and accept our reality. And remember, our reality is going to be different according to the different parts of ourselves. And there are no bad parts. Just like there are no bad emotions, there are no bad parts. There are only parts that are forced into unhealthy roles. All of your parts are beautiful. They have gifts. They have talents. They have perspectives that are meant to help and serve you throughout your life. And because of trauma, those parts sometimes are forced into unhealthy roles. They carry burdens from our childhood or our earlier adulthood, and they try to keep us from experiencing pain. So one of the things that we do is we assign roles to the different parts of ourselves in order to help us experience less pain and to help us survive what we believe would be so much pain that we wouldn't be able to function or survive. And I want you to know that there is hope. If you're identifying parts of yourself that have been put into unhealthy roles, these roles aren't static. 
they can change with time and with work. So recognize that just because one of your parts is stuck in a role that is causing you a lot of grief right now, it doesn't mean that that part is always going to operate in that way. The more we can create safe space for that part to be heard and seen and validated and accepted and loved, the less emotional baggage it's going to carry. And the more it puts down its emotional baggage, the less the protector parts of you that we'll talk about in a minute will feel like they need to protect yourself. And the less controlling, perfectionistic, people-pleasing, addictive behaviors you'll engage in to protect yourself from these vulnerable emotional parts. So the more openness, the more curiosity, the more non-judgment we can give these parts of ourselves, the more we can say, hey, you are all welcome here. I want to hear you and understand you. I want to hear what your needs are. I want to validate you. I want to have empathy for you. I want you to feel welcome here. The more we can do that for the different parts of ourselves, the easier it is for them to lay down their burdens, lay down the baggage they've been carrying for all of these years, and actually take up their original healthy roles to serve you. The more all the subpersonalities within yourself will be able to work in harmony. So if you feel like you're at war with yourself, sometimes what we try to do is we try to bludgeon the parts of us that aren't working. We bludgeon the parts of us that are overeating or the parts of us that are addicted to substances or we bludgeon the parts of us that can't seem to make friends and pushes everybody away or we bludgeon the parts of us that are really closed off or the parts of us that feel shame or the parts of us that feel anger we try to beat those parts down we make them an enemy and by doing that we actually increase the problem Dr. Schwartz says the more we open up space for all of our parts to be accepted and heard and valued, the easier it is for us to integrate into one whole unit, the more we work better together as a team. I want you to think about if you were working in a work environment, what's going to create more teamwork? Is it going to be a boss that bludgeons certain members of the team and pits people against each other and makes certain people the enemy? Or is it going to be the team leader that opens up the space and says, all of your ideas are welcome. You're all on this team for a reason. You all bring valuable things to the table. And I'm here to hear your perspective and to make sure your needs are met and to let you know that you're valuable and that I appreciate your work. Think about those work environments. Which one is going to create the most teamwork and the most cohesion? It's going to be the open environment. So we're creating that for ourselves, for all the different parts of ourselves, so that we can work together cohesively towards a life that feels purposeful and fulfilling or even peaceful or calm or joyful. That is what we're aiming for with ourselves. We want that teamwork. So how are we going to create this safe space for healing our wounded parts? So the first step is going to be to acknowledge that we all have different parts. Acknowledgement is always the first step. We cannot begin to solve a problem or begin to fix an issue that we will not acknowledge. 
So we all have different parts. And some of them are competent and adult-like. In fact, I would say that that's probably how you're showing up in your adult life most of the time. The competent adult-like parts are what is running your daily life. It's how you're showing up at work. It's how you're showing up in your marriage or in your relationship with your significant other. It's how you're parenting your children. I would say most of the time, it's your competent and adult-like parts that are running the show. But then you also have parts that are probably quite needy or lonely or ashamed or afraid. And a lot of times we treat those parts of ourselves as if they are alien. They're not welcome here. They're not part of the group. And we treat them like they're the enemy and that they're not us. In religious jargon, that would be Satan. So we demonize the parts of ourself that are needy or lonely or grieving or angry or shamed or anxious. We say that that's Satan when actually it is the wounded child parts of ourself that are trying their best to protect us. It's no wonder that we're at war with ourselves after leaving high-demand religion because parts of ourselves have been demonized. Like, quite literally, parts of ourselves have been called Satan, have been called the devil. And so the adult-like parts of ourselves, the parts of us that are healthy and functioning well, or at least healthier and functioning better than other parts, we call those parts worthy, righteous, Christ-like, or good. But the parts of ourselves that are unruly, that have big emotions, that sometimes sabotage our progress, that get triggered, we call those parts the devil. So when we're saying, not today, Satan, to the parts of ourselves that are angry, or afraid, or loud, or needy, or lonely, We're actually demonizing those parts of ourselves and making them feel less safe to talk with us. So we all have different parts. Some of them are healthier and some of them are unhealthier and none of them are bad. None of them are bad. They are all parts of us that are actually trying to protect us and keep us safe to the best of their ability. Whether it's functional or unfunctional, they're all trying their best to keep us safe. So that's the first thing we need to understand to create healthy space for us to have this conversation and to welcome all the parts of ourselves into the team where we can collaborate together. The second thing we need to understand is that we all have parts that already have the qualities of a healthy attachment figure and that that part can become a good internal parent to these other parts. So no matter how tumultuous of a childhood you had, no matter how engaged or neglectful your parents were, no matter how harmful the things your parents said to you were, you still have a part inside of you that has the qualities of a healthy attachment figure. We all come with that. So there is a part of you that knows how to be a good parent or a part of you that knows how to be a good friend. There's a part of you that is empathic and kind. There's a part of you that is accepting and loving. There's a part of you that can hold yourself accountable with compassion. 
And it's this part that can become a good internal parent to all of these parts of you that had to take on unhealthy roles in your childhood or young adulthood or even last year as you were going through trauma or attachment injuries. Recognize that there is a part of you that can be the parent that you always wish you had, that can help you heal those old wounds where your parent didn't show up for you the way that you needed them to, or when no one protected you and you wish that they would have. You have a part of you that all of your inner children, all the different variations of your inner child, can trust and rely on and seek acceptance from and seek validation from. So regardless of whether our parents are capable of showing up in healthy attachment ways, we are capable of giving that to ourselves. So that's the second thing we need in order to create space for healing our wounded parts. First, to recognize that we have parts and that none of them are good or bad. And second, to recognize that one of those parts, at least, is a healthy adult figure that is compassionate and kind that can care for the other parts inside of us. The third thing we need is to create a state of mindfulness in which we are the awareness observing the parts. We create a degree of separation between our whole self and the needs, thoughts, and emotions of the various different subpersonalities within ourselves. And when I say that we create a degree of separation, this doesn't mean that we're just passively observing them like, oh, you're angry, so what? We compassionately observe them. Remember, we get curious. We listen without judgment. We're there and we're present. But we understand that we are not the thoughts and the emotions and the beliefs of these various different parts of ourselves. It allows us to step back from things like our inner critic, who plays a role, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but to step back from our inner critic that's berating us or berating a part of us and to say, hey, I noticed that you're saying this. What are you trying to protect? Like, I can tell that you're a protector or you wouldn't be using this language. What are you trying to protect? What are you afraid will happen if you don't berate me this way? What are you afraid will happen if we allow this part of me to show up? And to then work with this inner critic part of us that seems like a mean bully and recognize that they've been put in an unhealthy role as a way to try to protect us from further pain, as a way to protect us from huge emotions that we might not feel like we have the tools to take care of. Understanding that we're not just going to passively observe the bully and we're not going to passively observe the part of us that the bully is bullying, the part that feels like they're not enough or that they're worthless or that they're weird or whatever it is that that part of ourself feels about themselves. We're not just going to watch this. We're going to create space to say, hey, what's going on for you? Tell me your perspective. What are you afraid of? What are you feeling? What do you need to feel safer or better? I'm here and I'm listening. Remember, you're the team leader here. You're the person creating safe space for the whole team to feel like they are accepted at the table and that all of their perspectives are welcome here. And all the different parts want someone to listen to them, to validate their experience, 
to have empathy for them, and to accept them for who they are. Remember, we have greater opportunities for collaboration and for cohesion when all of the parts' perspectives are worthy and acceptable, and when those parts feel safe to be with you. When we can create this kind of environment for our parts, they're able to unload the emotional burdens and extreme beliefs they picked up from trauma and attachment injuries, and it allows them to transform back into their natural state of innocence, creativity, and joy. So the safer of an environment you can create for your parts, the better they're going to be able to communicate their perspective, the emotional burdens they're carrying, what they're afraid of, what they're angry about, and what they need. And the more we're able to listen to that, the more they're able to unload these emotional burdens and extreme beliefs like the world isn't safe. No one cares about me. I'm unlovable. And some of those extreme beliefs that sort of lie underneath the surface, they're like the underlying code underneath our thinking and our programming and it affects our behavior and we often get results we don't want because we have these underlying extreme beliefs that the world is fundamentally unsafe or that relationships are fundamentally unsafe or that somehow we're fundamentally not worthy and by working with our parts we get at those extreme beliefs that are down below that are sort of running the behavioral program of our life. Now let's talk about these parts or roles. I've already kind of talked about a few of them, but in internal family systems, all of your parts are either protecting you from something or they're being protected. Now there are three main dysfunctional roles that the different parts of yourself can be pushed into. And those roles can show up differently and we'll kind of talk about that, but there are three main roles that your different parts will be given depending on your trauma and your experience. The first one is exiles. Now, these are the inner parts of ourselves that we try to exile from our consciousness. I want you to just sit with that. Are there parts of you that you've ever stuffed, tried to ignore, pretended like weren't there? Parts of you that you tried to mask? So the exiled parts of ourselves carry our deepest wounds. They're usually the most playful, sensitive, creative, and innocent parts of us. And because they're so sensitive, they're the ones that get hurt the most during trauma and attachment wounds. Because it's so painful, we often lock these parts of ourselves up. And we compound the attachment wounds we experienced with our parents and other caregivers by also abandoning these parts of ourselves. So I want you to think about this. The most empathic, sensitive, deeply feeling, creative, joyful, and innocent parts of yourselves are usually the parts of you that are the most hurt during trauma and attachment injuries. These are the parts of you that feel so deeply and their emotional burden from the trauma because they're not allowed to talk about it and process it. And because they're such deep feelers, we exile them from our consciousness. We don't want to think about the way they perceived it. We don't want to think about their feelings. So we give this part of ourselves that emotional burden and we send them packing. No, we're not angry. 
that's been exiled. No, we're not grieving, that's been exiled. No, we don't feel lonely, that's been exiled. We don't feel unlovable or ashamed. All of that has been pushed out of our consciousness, usually pushed into the far reaches of our body, stuffed inside a box, wrapped in duct tape, chains put over it. And these exiled parts are usually feeling big feelings like fear and guilt and shame and anger and responsibility for things that happened and a sense of worthlessness or hopelessness or loneliness a sense of emptiness or grief or disappointment. And we lock up and hide these feelings from our consciousness because if we were to feel these things all of the time without knowing how to work through them, we wouldn't be able to function. And remember, these exiles were usually sent out of consciousness when we were children. Did we have the tools to work through our big emotions if we didn't have emotionally intelligent parents? to sit us down and walk us through it? No. And if some of these things happened to us and our parents weren't aware, even the most emotionally intelligent parent isn't going to catch every single thing that we experience in childhood. And if those things go without being able to be worked through, because in childhood, we still don't know how to manage our big emotions, then... It can feel really scary when we feel a lot of anger. It can feel really scary when we feel a lot of shame or guilt or disappointment or loneliness. When we don't know how to verbalize it. When we don't know how to work through it or comfort ourselves. And because we didn't know how to work through these feelings at the time the trauma or attachment wounds happened, it felt overwhelming and we exiled these parts of ourselves. But these parts of ourselves don't lock away silently. They want someone to acknowledge what happened, to validate it, to help them work through it. They constantly bring back emotions and memories in order to remind us that they are there. And they're going to keep doing that until we give them attention and look after them. And the longer we pressure cook those things, the longer we keep them locked up and exiled, the bigger the expressions of these emotions become. There's a reason why things that we lock up in childhood start coming out in midlife. It's because we've been locking them back up and locking them back up and they get louder and louder and louder, seeking our attention, hoping that we finally have the tools where we can work through these things. And sometimes they flood our being with strong emotions that feel threatening to a self that feels unequipped to deal with those emotions. So I'm going to take you back to my late 20s when I would often feel anger. My exiled parts were trying to tell me that I was tired of living by other people's expectations, that I was tired of masking parts of myself, that I was tired of keeping secret my feelings of abandonment and my feelings of unworthiness, that I wanted someone to care for those things. I wanted to work through them, but I didn't know how. Because anger was not allowed in my home growing up. I was not allowed to feel or express anger. That was reserved only for certain people in our home. I had to stuff all of that anger. So every time I stuffed the anger, and I stuffed the trauma of things that happened in my home, 
I was sending another part of myself into exile, the part that had to hold all of these feelings of trauma, these feelings of not feeling safe, these feelings of being angry about not feeling safe, feelings of being angry that I had to caretake the people that made me feel not safe. I had been stuffing those things since I was tiny, since before I could remember. And they were coming up more frequently and more frequently, particularly as some of the more adult, healthy parts were parenting my new son. So here I had this new child, and I was parenting him and showing him love and acceptance and feeling all of these kind, compassionate feelings towards him giving him things that I wish I had had as a child growing up. And it was like these exiled parts of me could no longer take it. They couldn't watch me parent my child with kindness and compassion while having to be silent about the abuse that I experienced growing up. And they got louder and louder and louder asking for the adult me to finally hear and validate their cries, asking the parent part of me to listen to and empathize with them, asking someone to acknowledge what they went through, asking someone to be aware that things were not safe growing up. Now, there are other parts of me that have wonderful memories of my childhood, and that's where it gets confusing. I have exiled parts of my childhood that hold trauma and fear and feelings of worthlessness and feelings of abandonment, but I also have parts of my childhood that feel accepted and valued and loved and healthy, and that's what I mean about we're a multiplicity. It's not all or nothing. It's not one or the other. There are parts of myself that were very secure and confident, and there were parts of myself that felt utterly worthless and were so afraid that if people knew everything about us, if people knew some of our deep, dark secrets that we were keeping hidden, that we would be rejected and abandoned. What happens is when these exiled parts flood us with strong emotions— emotions that we don't know how to handle. We develop two other parts to try to protect us from being overwhelmed by the exiles. And these two parts are managers and firefighters. Now, the managers are our day-to-day protectors in our lives. They're always on guard for things that might trigger the pain of the exiles, and they're always strategizing ways to avoid those events. Managers try to control your relationships and your environment so you're never in a position of being hurt. They avoid emotion, and they try to control everything. Now, I want to say here really quickly that all of these things happen on a spectrum. This is a continuum. Again, it's not all or nothing. So it's not like your managers are either super, super, super controlling or non-existent. You may have parts of yourself that are mildly controlling or mildly perfectionistic or mildly detached from others. But you may have, at the most extreme point, some parts of yourself that are incredibly controlling or incredibly perfectionistic as a way to try to protect you from further pain and harm. 
So understand that I'm talking about these things in very extreme terms, but you may notice that you have parts of yourself that have some of these characteristics, but maybe not as extreme. The manager parts of yourself, they avoid emotion. They try to control everything. They're constantly scanning the future to try to control and protect the outcome for the exiles. They're always looking to the future to try to make plans and to control the environment and to control your relationships so you don't experience pain, so you're not triggered, so you don't have to deal with the hurt again, so you don't have to relive trauma. Some examples of how managers show up might be the controller. So the controller tries to control everything so you can avoid unforeseen things triggering the pain of your trauma. So maybe you develop obsessive compulsive disorder. Maybe you develop an eating disorder. Maybe you are the person that has to make all of the decisions in your relationship and you have a tendency to try to control other people's behavior to make yourself feel safe. Maybe you're the person that has to control everything that happens at work. You like to be in the driver's seat 100% of the time, and you do not relinquish control because you don't know what will happen, and not knowing what will happen feels very scary to you. If that is happening, this is something to get curious about. Remember, there are no bad parts. There are only parts that have been forced into unhealthy roles. So if you recognize this, that I do like a lot of control and I exert control in all of these ways, get curious with it. What is it protecting? Because if you have a controller, if you have a manager, there's also an exile that it's protecting. So get curious with your controller. Like, hey, I notice you control everything. Tell me about that. First of all, thank you for protecting me. But tell me about that. What's coming up for you? Who are you trying to protect? What are you afraid will happen? And listen and get curious with yourself. Remember, no judgment here. All of these things are trying to do their very best to protect you. And when it comes to all of these roles, typically none of the parts of yourself in any of these roles, the exile, the manager, or the firefighter, none of these are adult roles. These are all child roles, like inner child roles. So when you have a manager trying to protect an exile, I don't want you to think about this being like your adult self trying to protect your child self. This is more like your older child self trying to protect your younger child self. I don't know if any of you were babysitters when you were very young children. I started watching my siblings when I was eight years old. My parents would leave and I was at home at least as early as eight years old with my siblings who were five and three, I think. So I was at home as an eight-year-old because I was a very responsible child at home with a five and three-year-old. And I remember feeling responsible to keep these younger children safe. And things would go okay to a certain extent, but then you know how five-year-old boys and three-year-old girls are. Toddlers are mischievous little punks sometimes. And they would try to get out of the house. They'd try to unlock the doors. They'd pull up chairs. They'd try to pull things out of the fridge. Like There were things that were going on, and I had a very limited toolbox as an eight-year-old. Or a stranger would knock at the door, and instead of everyone staying quiet, they'd run to the door. And it was obvious someone was home. 
things like this. <laughs> there were crazy things that happened. And so I had a very limited toolbox as an eight-year-old. And there were times that I can remember feeling like I didn't know what to do to keep my brother and sister safe. And instead of being able to rationally work with them and I wasn't big enough to like force them to do certain things, sometimes I would just scream and yell and get really scary because I didn't know how else to get their attention. That is sort of what our managers are doing inside of ourselves. Our manager parts are like that eight-year-old child that has been given this kind of parentified role to protect the exiled child inside of you. And that part of you, their tools are limited. They don't have the emotional intelligence to protect you without resorting to some pretty effed up things. So recognize that as you show up as a manager, it is a parentified child version of yourself trying to keep another child version of you safe. These are like siblings. They're doing their best to care for you, but they have very limited toolboxes. I have compassion for the manager parts of myself and the firefighter parts of myself because they're like children playing grown up. They're doing the best with what they have. But they freak out sometimes because they don't have a bigger toolbox. They're doing the best they can with what they have. And as we work with, as, as we take our adult self, the healthy parts of ourself, and make room for these child versions of ourself that are burdened with caring for other parts of ourself, that are burdened with huge emotions that are not allowed, that are burdened with trying to get us not to feel things that are uncomfortable, when we make room for them, when we listen to them, when we care for them, when we validate them, and when we unburden them, they get to learn how to show up in healthier ways. Even the managers are parts of ourself, our inner children in ourself that need our love and care and concern, even when they're showing up as the bully. So remember that. Remember that the managers in our life, in our internal family system, they're not jerks on purpose. They're little kids that are overwhelmed trying to keep other parts of you safe. Okay, so that was the controller. The next way a manager can show up is the perfectionist. The way the perfectionist thinks is as long as it's perfect, you won't get rejected. And then you won't have to feel the painful feelings of being rejected. There's a whole podcast on perfectionism. And I highly recommend going to listen to that. It's from 2021. So go take a listen to that if you feel like you identify with that. If it's perfect, I won't get rejected. Then you've got the passive pessimist who avoids getting close to other people through withdrawal and passivity because closeness can release strong suppressed emotions. Even emotions like love, because they're such big feelings, when we feel big feelings, it can unlock other big feelings. So just like we can't selectively numb emotions, that if we're numbing difficult emotions, we end up numbing emotions like love and joy and stuff like that, 
when we have a surge of a big emotion, it can open the floodgate for us to feel other big emotions. It's part of the reason researchers believe that we are seeing so many big emotions in the world right now is because COVID actually brought up a lot of big emotions, a lot of anxiety, uncertainty, fear, anger in the world. And because we opened up to these big emotions, we unlocked a lot of the emotions of our exiles as well. So the emotions of our exiles are more easily accessible right now. So you're seeing a lot of people's inner children running around without the tools to regulate their emotions and things have just kind of run amok. It's something I'm studying more right now. I would love to tell you more, but I'm still learning. So I will bring you on that journey at some point in the future. But yeah, right now they're looking at internal family systems on the whole as a culture and are learning that when we have a bunch of exiles, we also are going to see more protectors showing up. And so we're seeing a lot of people's exiles out, but we're also seeing a lot of people's protectors. We're seeing a lot of people's inner critics come out. We're seeing a lot of people's controllers and perfectionists come out, passive pessimists come out, and babysitters coming out. We're seeing a lot of people's dysfunction coming out that they haven't known how to deal with because we're in such a high emotional state. It has unlocked the floodgates for us to feel lots of big feelings. So when you're afraid of feeling big feelings, you're afraid of getting close to people because getting close to people opens up the possibility of feeling big feelings like love or joy or acceptance, but also abandonment and pain or loss. Relationships can feel really scary to a manager. So if you find that you have a hard time getting close to people or making friends, this is something to get curious about. Maybe you have a manager that is keeping you away from people, keeping you from getting too close, keeping everything on the surface because it's trying to protect an exiled part of you that has big feelings it's scared to experience. The next way that a manager can show up is the babysitter. And this is a part of you that cares about everyone around you except yourself. And it uses this strategy to escape your own emotions. So if you find you're really good at caring for everyone around you, but not great at caring for yourself, that is likely a manager. And it's helping protect you from big feelings that one of your exiles or many of your exiles have. So just get curious with that. And the next one is the inner critic or the inner bully. And this criticizes and berates an exiled part of you to silence it and keep it from coming to the surface. It uses the criticism to try and protect the rest of you from the pain the exile holds. So if you have a big inner critic voice, as twisted as it sounds, that part of you is trying to protect you. It feels like if it berates and criticizes that exiled part of you enough, it'll stay quiet, it'll stay exiled, it'll stay in its little box, and you won't have to experience additional pain, and you won't have to deal with the tsunami of emotions without knowing how to deal with them. As long as you don't know how to deal with your emotions, as long as you don't feel like you can hold them and work through them, a lot of times your inner critic will stay there to try to protect you from emotions because it doesn't want you to get overwhelmed by them. And then last are our firefighters. So this is the third role that our parts can be forced into whenever we've experienced trauma 
or attachment injuries. What happens is sometimes our exiled parts break through the everyday defenses of the managers, and we're overwhelmed with feelings and we're confronted with an emotional fire that needs to be quickly put out to protect the structural integrity of our sense of safety. So we have this very fragile sense of safety built around us, and it's based on control, and it's based on exiling parts of ourselves and pretending like they don't exist, and it's based on being perfect, and it's based on not getting close to people, and it's based on caretaking everyone else but not ourselves, and berating ourselves or shaming ourselves if we feel like we're stepping out of line. And... When that is threatened, because either the trigger was so big that the emotions that we've stuffed for so long came flooding to the front, or whether we have a moment of CPTSD or PTSD, or when we have a new pain that brings up connections to an old pain, we have what is equivalent to an emotional fire and the firefighters come rushing in and they douse the emotional flames by numbing and distracting us from our pain. So where managers are proactive, meaning they try to prevent big feelings from happening in the first place by trying to control the environment and our relationships, firefighters are reactive in their response, meaning they show up after the damage has already been done. And much of the time, Firefighters rely on addictive behaviors to effectively numb our emotions. And these addictive behaviors usually involve things like food, sweets, smoking, drinking, drugs, sex and masturbation, gambling, social media, shopping, work, working out, and even religious zealotry. Now, none of these things, like food is not a bad thing. Sleep is not a bad thing. Sweets are not a bad thing. None of these things, when done in moderation, are bad, right? Sex is great. Social media can be great. Shopping, work, all of it. These can all be healthy parts of our life. And they also give us hits of dopamine. So our firefighters use these things that give us natural highs, and they have us do them obsessively in order to numb emotional pain. Now, the thing I want us to all understand is the reason these parts are often trapped in childhood is because they were created in childhood or in the early adult years, and they don't know that you've grown up. They get frozen in the time frame that the trauma happened. So if the trauma happened when you were two, you may have a part of yourself that still believes you're two. If the trauma happened when you're 12, that part of yourself may feel like a 12-year-old. If the trauma happened when you were 21 or when you were 30, there will be a part of you that will feel that age. So something I find really helpful when I'm triggered or whenever I feel a lot of resistance or I feel like something is war inside of myself is to ask myself what age that part of me feels. That allows me to start getting curious and to understand a little bit more what I'm dealing with. So for instance, that first year when I left Mormonism, there was a part of me that felt like I was a child living inside an adult body. And I know a lot of you resonate with that experience. I felt like a 12-year-old trapped inside of a 37-year-old body. When I think back, it makes sense. 
that it was at the age of 12 because at the age of 12 is when I entered into the young women's program in Mormonism. And I don't know what happens for young men at the age of 12, but for me in the young women's program, that was when we really started being indoctrinated with our roles as women in the church. And the options given to me in those programs often didn't include what deep down I knew I desired for myself. And so there was a lot of cognitive dissonance, I feel like, at the age of 12. And I started abandoning parts of myself and exiling parts of myself around the age of 12. And so it makes sense that when I left high demand religion, that when I would get triggered, the parts, the exiles that were coming up and wanted my attention were 12-year-old parts of myself that wanted to be validated and wanted to be heard and needed me to grieve with them because there were parts of myself that I exiled and didn't listen to and put out of my consciousness that would have probably changed the course of my life. Um, I ended up making choices based on the values of the Mormon church that I internalized and that they did feel like my own values for a while, but they felt like my own values at the expense of exiling parts of myself. And I really wasn't conscious that I was exiling parts of myself at the time, but it was what was needed in order to feel safe in my culture. And I didn't do it consciously. It's not like I was like, okay, (laughs) corporate America Terry needs to be put in the corner and boxed up. It was nothing like that. I just knew instinctively who I am as a person isn't acceptable here. And I unconsciously exiled that part of myself. And as I exiled those parts of myself, I also needed to create managers that would keep those parts exiled and keep me safe from them and keep me away from the cognitive dissonance that I would feel when those parts came up. So just know that these parts of ourselves, they're created in childhood, and when they pop up, And you'll know that they're popping up because you'll feel agitated, you'll feel at war with yourself, you'll feel blocked like there's something standing in your way, you'll feel like you have competing values, or you'll even notice that you're showing up one way in certain circumstances and another way in other circumstances, and it feels uncomfortable for you. It doesn't feel like it's serving you. It feels like there's something going on there and you're reverting back to a younger self or a different self in certain circumstances. Just get curious, allow yourself to observe without judgment, and ask yourself, what age does this part of me feel like? And it'll give you a better idea of what you're working with and where the wound happened and when the trauma happened and give you a better idea of questions to ask yourself. So once I realized I was working with a 12-year-old part of myself when I was 37, sitting with myself and saying, hey, what happened when you were 12 that I need to know? What are some of the things? And like, even just asking myself that question brought up a wave of grief, I remember. And asking myself, I feel grief. Tell me why you're grieving. And letting that part of me know I was listening, that I wouldn't judge them. I didn't think they were a bad person. I just wanted to know what was going on for them so that I could know how to help them allowed me to begin peeling back the layers. And my 12-year-old self and I had a lot of great discussions that first year after I left Mormonism 
And then I found myself talking with my 15-year-old self, and then my 18-year-old self, and then my 20-year-old self, and a lot of things that she had stuffed down as she was getting married and moving into adulthood and dreams that she stuffed down because of following the narrative of the church. And so there were a lot of things that I needed to talk to different parts of myself about, and all of them had an age. And knowing the age allowed me to get much more clear about what the trauma could possibly be. And it was a great guidepost. So just know that if you ask yourself, what age does this part feel like it is, it will lead you to the time frame that the trauma happened because those parts get exiled and frozen in time during the age that the trauma happened. I love something that Dr. Schwartz says here. He says, the mistake that most of psychotherapy and wider culture in general has made is to try and fight these different parts, to ignore them or block them or get rid of them in some way. And these parts will fight to the end of their ability to protect you. And in many cases, I mean the end. In the eating disorder field, for example, the status quo is still to pit the client against the eating disorder and to beat the eating disorder. And that's partly why so many anorexics die, because the eating disorder will beat you in order to protect you. So when we make enemies of the different parts of ourselves, they will fight us to the end, trying to protect us emotionally. As scary and as painful as it may sound, the more we can open up And we're going to talk about more of this in an upcoming episode. But the more we can open up and make a place for all of these parts of ourselves to be seen and heard and validated and listened to and ask them what their needs are and what they need to feel safe, giving them the validation and the compassion that they need. When we can open up and say, look, you are welcome here. You're accepted here. I just want to understand you and I want to learn how to serve you. And I want to know what we can do to make you feel more comfortable here. The more we do that, the better able we are to work as a team. The more we can all collaborate together. When we demonize parts of ourselves, when we exile parts of ourselves, when we try to beat parts of ourselves into submission, we actually create more dissonance, we create more managers, we create more firefighters, we create more shame, more isolation, more loneliness, more feeling of discord inside of ourselves. This week, our small step forward is simply to invite all of these parts of ourselves that are willing to make themselves known right now to the table. This week, create five minutes a day to just curiously and non-judgmentally observe your thoughts and feelings. Five minutes a day to drop into your body someplace quiet. I go here to my closet. It is the quietest place in my house. Nerf wars can be happening in the rest of my house, and I would never know it here in my closet. It's protected not only by my closet door, but then another outside door to my bathroom, and then another one to my bedroom. And it is nice and quiet and insulated in here. And so I come in here, I put my hands on my heart, I set the intention of, I want to hear what's going on in my body. 
There is no judgment here. I just want to understand. And I allow my awareness to sink down into my body and just to notice anything I'm feeling physiologically, any emotions I'm feeling, anything I'm thinking. Is there anything that's coming to mind a lot? And then I ask myself questions like, do these thoughts and feelings come from a part of myself I'm acquainted with? Is there a part of myself that I recognize here? Am I familiar with this part of myself? And then I ask myself questions like, does this part have a name? Does this part have an age? Does this part have a role? Is this an exiled part of myself? Does this feel like a manager that's trying to protect me from an exile? Or does this feel like a firefighter that's trying to just help me numb all the emotions so I don't have to feel anything? What does this feel like? And then just notice anything that comes up. Even resistance from a manager or firefighter. If you find yourself having a really hard time dropping into your body, a lot of my clients will say that they feel like they get stuck in their throat. If you feel yourself feeling anxious, or if you notice yourself getting drowsy or dizzy or distracted during the five minutes, this doesn't mean anything is wrong. This is just information about your protective mechanisms that will give you more insight into how to work with yourself. Remember, there are no bad parts. Even the ones that resist healing, even the ones that resist feeling, the ones that fight against you, the ones that feel like you're at war with, there are no bad parts. They're all either trying to protect you or they're being protected. Just notice what you find this week. Welcome and accept it. Get curious with it. Ask questions if you want and just observe what you discover. And my next ask is going to be, when you've completed at least two of these sessions, head over to the Facebook group. It's called Emancipate Yourself. Head over to the Facebook group and share what that experience was like. You don't have to share specifics about the parts of yourself, but what did it feel like to create a space at the table? For these different parts of yourself. What did it feel like to compassionately observe? What was your experience like? We would love to hear. The more of us that do this work together, the safer it feels for all of us to show up for ourselves this way. And the safer we can all feel to show up for ourselves this way, the more we learn how to show up for others too. We create a more compassionate world by starting inside here, inside ourselves. I want that for us so badly, especially with everything going on in the world. There is so much pain, suffering, and heartache. And when we can learn to accept ourselves and the different parts of ourselves, we show up in the world a more compassionate and present being. I want that world. I can envision that world. This is my work to bring about that world. And I look forward to creating it with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I'll see you next Sunday.